Hello, my name is Chris Gosling from Australian Fund Monitors. I recently had the opportunity to talk to Charlie Aitken from Aitken Investment Management, who runs the long-only AIM Global Growth Fund. I asked Charlie about his reflections on the past year, where he sees markets now, more importantly, what he thinks is in store for them. We covered a range of subjects, including global growth as we come out of the pandemic, how Australia has handled both the pandemic and the recovery from it, and what he sees as the risks are to the market, including inflation and therefore interest rates, and particularly the rising tensions as China flexes its political and economic muscle. Charlie, welcome back. Great to see you again. Uh, the beginning of the financial year, more importantly, probably the end of the last financial year. How did you find that 12 months and were you expecting it to be the way it's turned out to be? Well, hi, Chris. Good to see you again. Well, I'll tell you what I didn't expect. It was doing another Zoom interview at this time, you know, nearly 18 months after COVID started. So that is a disappointment, really, I suppose, in an Australian context. But it is what it is. I think we're all adapting to operating in a COVID environment. But look, I mean, the year, the year generated, you know, very good returns. I suppose we expected to be a good year for equities or high quality equities, which we own and global equities. And it did turn out that way. When you've got record government spending and record low interest rates and a vaccine, you know, the combination was there for good returns. And that's, that's what was delivered. So the only thing that I'm probably a little bit surprised about is uh, honestly where we're at in Australia, but, uh, which has been somewhat useful to us in holding the Australian dollar down. So when you say you're surprised at what we've seen in Australia, can you just elaborate on that a bit? Well, I mean, look, we invest globally. We don't invest anything locally. But look, the rest of the world is aggressively accelerating out of COVID lockdowns and going back to what is the new normal. You know, we're, we're miles behind on the vaccine rollout. The rest of the world's about 50% vaccinated. And anywhere else we invest now, it's pretty much business as usual. I mean, you can go to restaurants in New York. You can go to a show in Las Vegas. You can go to Wembley for the soccer in London. But Australia, you know, I'm doing this interview with you from my lounge room. So we are miles, miles, miles behind the rest of the world in reopening. And that's important from an investment perspective because it might just be that global, you know, global stocks keep doing pretty well in the environment as we reopen. And, you know, because the currency does affect how we invest, you know, it might just be a little bit stagnant for a while because Australian growth rates are going to be lower than the rest of the world while we uh, lag the world in vaccine rollout. Can you have the best of both worlds? You know, in the UK, they're out and about again, although... Uh, I spoke to some people at the end of last week who were locked down again because they'd been to a wedding and someone was infectious and, and the same in New York. It's, mm. th this is a really difficult situation. Um, governments have been criticised around the world for reacting slowly to the risks of the health and, and, and particularly hospitalisation. Yeah. We've sort of overcome that one pretty well, um, relatively speaking. But we're suffering, as you say, uh, on coming out of it from a, from a vaccination problem. Well, I suppose that one advantage was we are the most isolated country in the world. We've got a natural border as an island and we've got a very small population, which is reasonably well spread out. So did we manage it brilliantly or was it our own position that got us to manage it brilliantly? I don't know. But look, all I do know, Chris, and you don't want to get stuck in a debate about how this was handled, but... All I know is that once vaccines became more widely available globally, the world really embraced them and inoculation programs very aggressively, knowing it was the only way out. 
And I think that's where we are in sort of global versus local investing. You know, we are at the bottom of the OECD vaccination table and we need to pick that up. And don't be wrong, I think, I think Australia's done a great job to get to this part. No one wants people dying, but we need to get the vaccination rates up if we're going to compete with the rest of the world in terms of growth rates, in terms of recovery growth rates, in terms of what earnings can be delivered by Australian shares versus global shares. And I think right, right here, right now, we're quite badly handicapped versus the rest of the world. A, their, their drawdown, their, their economic you know, demise was greater, but their recovery would be much, much stronger and much, much quicker. So it's a, it's a balancing act, I know, but it is interesting where we invest. So we're starting to see pretty much normalised behaviour in the rest of the world, give or take, you know, air travel still down about 15, 20%. So that should give you a significant uh, sort of tailwind compared with a fund manager who's investing locally in Australia. You're investing globally, and what you're saying is the growth rates and the recovery rates globally will be better than they are in Australia. And that's, yeah, do you see a significant benefit for you? Probably in terms of, you know, in terms of the earnings growth the companies can deliver and the dividend growth they can deliver and the buybacks they can deliver. I think, yes, I think there is an advantage in global over domestic for the, for the next little while, just in terms of growth rates. And mostly because it's a fair bit of its recovery growth rates in deeply cyclical stocks have obviously got hammered over the last year or so. They've already started to recover. So, yes, I do think there's an earnings growth advantage in global equities over local equities for the you know, next year or so. And I think that you know, there's also a much bigger addressable market of opportunity outside Australia. You know? So we can, you know, we're, we're very well diversified inside the portfolio despite owning only 22 stocks. And I think that if you're diversified enough, there's, there's good leverage to different themes as the, as the economy recovers. I mean, one of the most simple ones is just consumer spending. So some of our biggest uh, investments are things like MasterCard and PayPal, just clipping the ticket on the consumer, getting out there and spending it, but also spending online. So we've got pretty simple themes that we believe in and something simple as, you know, consumer spending, digitalization of currency, et cetera. So you don't have to go and buy a cruise ship company to go and you know play a recovery you can do it through mastercard and paypal so it's not it's not all high risk taking that you need to do sure let's think about the some of the risk side of it um and, and to mention a few i mean one's obviously interest rates they're incredibly low they have been incredibly low for a long period of time probably longer than you or i would ever have considered realistic or possible you know if you go back 10 or 15 years so what's, what's your view on the risk of, of inflation and therefore interest rates? Well, it's interesting, actually, you're talking about you and I with a little bit of grey hair. And one of my <laughs> colleagues, uh, she got a mortgage 10 years ago and she's never, ever experienced interest rates going up, ever. You've got to just remember that. It's quite amazing. I mean, obviously, in our lifetime, we've seen them go up. So here we are. Here's the simple point, Chris. They can't go any lower. It's a matter of when they go up and how aggressively they go up. And that all comes down to inflation because central banks are all inflation targeting in terms of their mandates and well, the, dual, the dual mandate of inflation and full employment. I still think at the moment you're just seeing some recovery sort of inflationary pressure, a little bit of pressure on wages, some commodity prices rallying. So I sort of tend to believe the central banks might be right in terms of this is a bit transitory. You're still fighting the big headwinds of demographics and technology, which are working against inflation. So, look, I also think, you know, it's very, very hard to get interest rates up once you've got them this low. Remember that very small moves in interest rates are very big percentage changes on your payments, on your mortgage. And that's, that's it's going to make it very difficult to get them up in an aggressive way. So, 
we're of the view that there'll be that we had predicted there'd be an inflation pickup that we saw in the headline level that's happening right now, but we're also of the view that it'll probably calm down a little bit after here. So, you know, you don't want to have all your eggs in one basket. That doesn't mean you own you know highly geared companies or just because interest rates are low. I think it's time to be sensible and just acknowledge that interest rates can't go any lower, but it may be some time before they you know increase. And I, I just don't think. The inflation answer is known to anyone quite yet, but I tend to think it is more on the transitory side. Let's look at another risk, Charlie, China. Now, whether it's uh, trade with Australia, which obviously is less impacting on you because you're globally, but, you know, the position that Australia is in with China is not unique. China and a number of countries around the world are at loggerheads politically. How do you see that risk playing out? Yeah, it's probably the biggest risk, Chris. I worry more about Chinese behaviour or Beijing's behaviour or regulatory risk out of China than, than I actually do about inflation. I think the inflation thing, well, a little bit of inflation is good for equities. Just remember that. Companies with pricing power can raise their prices, you drive a bit of revenue growth. It's, there's nothing wrong with a little bit of inflation. It's actually it's a, it's a good thing. China, I think the behaviour is getting more and more and more aggressive out of Beijing. I think it, you can see, look, there's a classic example this week. I mean, DD, the ride-sharing service, floated on the New York Stock Exchange last week, and then Beijing announced an inquiry, a regulatory inquiry into it by Monday. The shares fell, you know, 10 15%, whatever it is. So straight away, they didn't care it had just IPO'd in America. In fact, maybe the regulatory response was because it IPO'd in America. So there's all sorts of aggressive, unpredictable behaviour. And when I see that from a, from a regulatory perspective, I think it's just best to avoid it. So we, we don't own any Alibaba or Didi or anything. We have a small investment in Tencent, which is at the bottom of our portfolio. But we are very aware of China-specific risk at the moment, just mainly because of the unpredictability of it. You know, and I don't want to be involved in unpredictable situations. I'd rather own Nike or Accenture or Berkshire Hathaway or just you know, know what I'm doing. And the other side of this equation is since you know, the change of president in America, you know, the, the quietness of Twitter accounts has been good, a good thing for equity markets. You know, I don't want to get involved in politics here, but that not waking up each morning to some you know, bunch of tweets that affected a share price or a sector has been quite helpful to the share market. So I think there's less regulatory risk in America. I think there's growing regulatory risk in China. And that's how we're positioned. Very cautious on China, pure China facing exposure. Well, we hope that the regulatory risk uh, and the political risk from China stays at the market levels and the commercial levels and doesn't go any further. But I thought it was quite an eye-opener last week to see the 100th anniversary of the Communist Party, and that was as close uh, as I've ever seen anything to pre-war Germany. Yeah, well, I wasn't alive then, so I'll just put that in brackets. But look, when you've got I'm not, that old. I'm not that old, Charlie. No, no, no. <laughs> look, when you've got entrepreneurs going missing and new IPOs being scuttled by Beijing and the ant financial episode for Barber, look, I don't like all that. And I just think from a funds management, risk management perspective, better avoid it. Yes, growth rates in China are still attractive, but we would rather own a company like Nike that gets about 20% of its revenue from China without being listed in China or really subject to too much Chinese regulation, if you want to put it that way, and just not lose, uh, say, exposure to the Chinese Chinese growth engine, but not own it directly. And that, ha that has not hurt us at all. And one of the reasons we've performed a fair bit better than our peers over the last few years is not having exposure to things like Alibaba, which, you know, sound fantastic on paper, but 
you know, there, there's there's things going on that would make you concerned who's actually allocating the capital at Alibaba. You've mentioned a few of your stocks, Charlie. Can we? Do, do you want to sort of focus in on uh, some particular positions that have done particularly well over the past 12 months and then possibly the, the way you're looking at the next 12 months? Yeah, look, I mean, it's... it's Pretty much most things performed for us well last year. I mean, the fund's up around 26%, so you need everything to do some lifting inside that. So that was a, a good return over two years. I think we're up 17% per annum. You know, we've got low drawdown rates, and as, as, as you can see through fund monitors. And look, everything's going along nice, low volatility, good, high-quality businesses grinding it out. I suppose the most recent example of something that well, went well for us where a thesis played out was Nike. Now, people were worried about Nike with close downs and China and et cetera. And, but look, it's just, it, it is a transformational story. It's going from being a wholesaler of shoes to direct to the consumer via its own websites and its own stores, cutting out the middleman. That was our thesis. And that got evidenced in last week's result. I think the stock was up 15% to a new all-time high. You don't want to be you know, crowing about things, but the thesis is playing out. And the margins and cash flow that comes directly selling Nike shoes to the consumer and cutting out the middleman are dramatically better than with wholesalers, plus you can control your inventory better. So Nike's been a really good one for us. I think the other thing that we like, reason we like Nike is just this trend to athleisure wear. I mean, I'm currently wearing, you know, running shorts in this interview. You can't say that. <laughs> no. I'm pleased to hear that. I could be. But, um, you know, the trend to athleisure wear has been hot, accelerated by COVID and that, that won't go away. And obviously one of the few things you can do in Australia when, when you have these snap lockdowns is go for a walk. So... You know, I think athleisure wear is uh, here to stay. So Nike's been a good business transformation story to us and one that will continue to play out. Other ones that are not so obvious, another business called you know, Accenture that provides really IT uh, consulting work to the, the larger, larger business community. Now, the one thing everyone needs in a larger business now is the ability to remote work, you know, be, 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 uh, be, be reactionary if you need to, be able to handle lockdowns, et cetera, et cetera. So Accenture is a you know, IT stock without being an IT stock because it's consulting on IT. And it's been a really good performer for us that no, most people don't own or don't know about. But if you think about how the corporate world would like to cover themselves from risk, having a few consultants that are advising you on IT at the moment is probably something you're going to spend money on. So that's that's been a good one for us too. In terms of, you know, what comes next? I mean, I continue to think, you know, probably low interest rates, grinding it out, recovery, probably a few stop starts on here and there in terms of COVID. I, I think a little bit of political escalation between America and China, okay, that's that's on the cards, or the world versus China. But broadly, I think the the, the, the outlook for equities as an asset class is, is good. You know, yes, there's elements of highly speculative behaviour in some individual stocks and sectors. We don't own them. We own great businesses that are, you know, generally, you know, no, generally no debt, you know, growing at sort of 15% high returns on invested capital. So I still think you can be invested selectively in really good businesses. And maybe just, maybe it's a time not to be involved in highly, highly speculative stuff. We've seen a bit of hot air come out of that. And you can see that if for some reason interest rates go up, that's where the, that's where the deflation in share prices will be in the, in the most speculative parts of the market. And in that, presumably those companies are also defensive. They're going to perform much better if, when there is a downturn for whatever reason. If you've still got the PayPal's and the MasterCard, the Nike, uh, Accenture, they are companies that will perform much better through the cycle than a highly speculative yeah, stock. Yeah, so. Look, for every, there is one, you know, there's not 60 new Amazons out there, Chris. There might be one. 
Uh, I'm not sure what it is. There'll be in some sector, there'll be some new, but there's not 60 new Amazons out there. So there's two things about owning a hot, super high quality portfolio. In the downdraft, the balance sheets are so strong that none of these businesses are going out of business. In fact, we saw many of them take market share during the COVID close downs or buy other competitors or take advantage of their balance sheet strength during that. So first thing is the balance sheet is, you know, keeps you in good stead. Then they take market share and then they recover better or quicker than, than other companies because they didn't have much to recover from. So we've, we've found that it works pretty well through, you know, if you look at our numbers over the last two years, our numbers are ahead of the market, ahead of most of our peers on a two-year basis. We've been tested with a market collapse and recovery, a rotation from growth to value stocks, a huge rotation into you know, anything with an ESG angle. It's just been unbelievable what's happened in two years. And the process has come through it well. Now, and even according to your own data, we have the lowest monthly in a down month, no fund that does global out of Australia that you cover falls less. So that comes down to the quality of the portfolio. So if you fall less, that's a great place to start. It's not, not how you advertise a fund. We fall less than everyone else, but it's a very good place to, you know, to be in terms of the process working and, and being providing you defensive characteristics without buying purely defensive stocks is how I describe it. I think defence is really important, Charlie. You know, one of the first rules of, of making money is never to lose money. You know, the whole, the whole concept of if you have a 25% or a 50% drawdown, which yeah. markets have in total, then for a 50% drawdown, you've got to go up 100% before you get your nose above water. 25%, you know, it's... it's that's a real struggle. If you can if you can limit the downside, it's why we put such an emphasis actually on it and down capture and those mm. sorts of things. You can limit the downside, even though there haven't been many negative months on the market uh, as there have been in the past. Then you're going to do much better because you don't have as mm. as far to get back up on top again. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, we've experienced that over the last year. Our drawdown was, you know, very, really quite low. I mean, the other thing we like, you know, is remaining unhedged to the Aussie dollar because if you're wrong for some reason and the world does go to cactus, you can be pretty much assured the Aussie dollar will give you some protection by falling. It's a commodity currency. It's 2% of the world's, you know, GDP. And it does provide protection against the portfolio. And it stops you thinking about selling great businesses to run, to raise cash because you, the currency is giving you a bit of protection as well. Now, the currency has been pretty stagnant lately, which is, which is helpful, you know, but it, we remain... Now, one of the reasons we did before, you know, have low downside capture was being unhedged the Aussie dollar you know, in the worst, of the, you know, the worst of what happened a year ago. But it also... You know, the Aussie dollar is probably unlikely to double, but over the next five or 10 years, I think most of the stocks in our portfolio could double. You know, their businesses are you know, reinvesting their capital at 15% to 20%. You know, they, they're growing the headline 15 to 20%. I think they could double over the next five or 10 years if, if the world continues to recover and they take market share. So, you know, I, I think there's ways of limiting downside capture and being a defensive portfolio without giving up the upside. So we are always fully invested. We believe there's no reason for us not to be fully invested. And the biggest mistake anyone's made in the last two years is trying to time markets with big cash allocations. That's been, a, that's been a really hard game. So what if we can reduce the variables in our portfolio, just own businesses we understand, and then have the currency do a little bit of relief every now and then when it, it helps us when, uh, when the markets are wobbly, uh, that, that's how we run it. Charlie, always great to talk to you. It's good to understand the business, understand the thought process. And as you say, the fund has performed particularly well against its peer groups. 
so long may that continue. Best of luck for twenty for the next twelve months, maybe for the next twenty years. Oh, it's, like, it's like a game. It's like a, as I say to my children, Chris, it's like a game of football with no full time. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's nice you have these numbers every financial year, every six months, but it never ends. But anyway, look, we, we're confident we've got a really good process, good people, good you know, good portfolio. We're not exactly sure what comes next, as none of us are, but. You know, I think I still think the outlook for the next year or so looks looks pretty positive. So always nice to speak to you, Chris, and thanks for your time. Charlie, thank you.